0: I'm Chris Lester, your guide to worlds of fantasy and wonder. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, and keep you informed on my life and my writing. So let's get right to it, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part two of my science fiction story, The Nearness of You. If you missed part one, go back to episode 212 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, we were introduced to Jill and her husband, Tad, who live in a future not too distant from our own time, though with some important differences. Everyday life has been transformed by the widespread use of augmented reality implants, which allow human consciousness to interface seamlessly with computers. This has made possible a second innovation that is even more important—telepresence. This technology allows people to transmit a virtual copy of themselves, complete with up-to-the-minute memories and personality, and run it in an instance on another person's AR implants. When the instance is over, the copy's memories are transmitted back to the sender and sideloaded into her mind upon waking. She then remembers saying and doing the things that her copy did— as if she herself had done them. This allows people to have experiences anywhere in the world, as long as there's someone with AR implants to receive the copy. Jill was in the midst of a telepresence call to Tad when she was suddenly killed in a car accident. Tad couldn't bear to let Jill's instance end, because that would mean she was gone forever. Instead, he has devoted almost all the processing power and storage in his implants to keeping the instance running letting her live on as a sort of digital ghost that only he can see. More than three years have passed, and Jill is deeply conflicted. It hurts to be so close to her husband, but unable to feel his touch. Even more than that, though, it hurts to see him unable to move on. Tad lives as a virtual hermit, going to his job as a middle school teacher, eating lunch alone in his classroom, socializing with no one except Jill. No one else knows about the ghost living in his head. This self-imposed solitude is interrupted by one of Tad's fellow science teachers, a cute and effervescent blonde woman named Sarah. Jill can tell immediately that Sarah is interested in Tad, and that the attraction is mutual. But Tad is wary of making the first move. Jill challenges him to a bet, If Sarah asks him out, he'll say yes, and Jill will stay out of the way and let them get to know each other. If Jill's wrong, then she'll grade all of Tad's midterm exams. Tad hesitates, but Jill tells him it's past time for him to move on. Finally, he answers, in a voice only she can hear. All right. You're on. The Nearness of You Written in Read by Chris Lester Part Two Sarah doesn't return that afternoon, as I half expect her to. The next day, though, she arrives during Second Period, when the Science Department has their shared prep period. Well, I think I'm halfway there, she says, settling onto the edge of his desk within arm's reach. I'm getting some funny error messages when I try to sync the two data loggers, though. You got time to come take a look at it with me? Maybe you'll see what I'm doing wrong. Tad smiles his goofy smile again. Sure, I've got some time. For the next half hour or so, they are engrossed in the technical details of their craft, I use the time to explore Sarah's classroom. It has a few personal touches. A picture of her with her cat, another with her baby niece, a few flowering plants that probably double as exhibits for her botany lessons. Most of the walls are covered with anchor charts and student work. Sarah came to the school two years ago, fresh off a year of student teaching, and her training is still very much in evidence. Tad has never told her about me. When she arrived, a year after the accident, he was just starting to put the pieces of his life back together again. I wonder how much she has heard in gossip from the other teachers. Eventually, Tad looks up at the clock and grins sheepishly at Sarah. Guess I'd better get back to my classroom. You feeling better about this now? Much, Sarah says, beaming back. I'm going to try it out tomorrow. When's your second off period? Sixth. Perfect. That gives me time to work out the kinks. Want to come by and see how it works? Love to. And if you need anything else tomorrow at second period, just let me know. I will. As we walk back down the hall toward Tad's room, he glances at me sidelong. No date offers yet, he murmurs. I raise my chin confidently. Give it time. The next day, a Friday, we return to Sarah's classroom, and spend most of an hour watching children take turns running, spinning, and jumping, with the bulky data loggers attached to their heads. It certainly looks like a fun way to learn about frames of reference, though it occurs to me that the whole thing would be much easier to implement if the children were old enough to have their AR implants installed. We leave five minutes ahead of the bell, and hurry back to Tad's room for seventh period. She's good at this, I observe. You should work with her on curriculum more often. I should, Tad says. It would be easier if they gave us more planning time. I flash him a smile. I guess you'll have to plan something outside work hours. Maybe over dinner. Tad looks exasperated. Why are you so insistent about this? Because you have no social life outside of work, I say. You don't see our friends anymore. You stopped dancing. You don't go to bars you don't use dating apps because they all use telepresence. If I'm going to get you laid, I have a limited pool of candidates to work with. Tad winces. Jill. And besides, I say, talking over him, she's a sweet woman, she's smart, she's pretty, and she likes you. And she's as obsessed with her job as you are. So was I, to be fair, which was one reason for all those long-distance telepresence sessions we used to have. If I had it to do over again, I think I'd have taken a job that left me more time with flesh-and-blood Tad instead of virtual Tad. But I keep these thoughts to myself. Tad's frown takes on a worried edge. But don't you think... He hesitates. I raise my eyebrows and gesture for him to continue. You don't think you'd... be jealous? His voice turns uncertain on the last word as if he's ashamed to think me capable of such a thing. I'm not jealous, I assure him. He is silent a long moment before speaking. Why not? he asks. I can see in his eyes that it's a serious question, and I stop to give it the consideration it deserves. Before I can give him an answer, though, the bell rings, and Tad turns his attention to teaching his last period. I watch from the back of the class, continuing to kick the question around in what passes for my head. On the one hand, I can see the logic in his question. Tad was the love of my life. The thought of being replaced by someone else should be painful. By all rights, shouldn't I be the one who has the hardest time letting go of what we had? No matter how much I think about it, though, I cannot cause these feelings to manifest. I miss Tad's body, to be certain. I wish that I could be with him again, but when I picture him making love again, I feel only happiness and satisfaction. I simply cannot imagine him breaking my heart. And I realize, in a moment of stunned insight, that this is because he never did break my heart. I'm a businesswoman, not an engineer or a scientist. I don't pretend to know all the details of how telepresence works. But from what I do understand, the AR implant copies your memories and your recorded emotional states and uses them as a template for a virtual self. You don't actually go anywhere. The speed of light is too slow to carry a telepresence conversation in real time. Instead, the program with your memories acts as your proxy in the conversation, and then you receive a copy of its experience when the connection closes. Since most instances only last a few minutes, the difference between what you would do in that conversation and what your proxy actually does is negligible. But my program has been running for over three years now. Or... Or maybe it would be better to say Jill's program has been running for over three years. And that program... I am starting to run into situations my template didn't prepare me for. It is a jarring thought. Three years, and this is the first time I have ever considered myself as an entity separate from Jill. I knew this, of course. I knew, rationally, that Jill's soul had not magically flitted through the lines of the net and become lodged in the memory banks of Tad's implants. But I still felt like me like Jill, so I thought it didn't matter. If I wasn't Jill's ghost, I was close enough to be going on with. Except I'm not. I'm something else. Something inspired by Jill, based on Jill, but not Jill. And for the life of me, I don't know what that means, or what to do about it. After the dismissal bell, Tad cleans the classroom and sets up for Monday's classes. I help by pulling up the lesson plans for next week and putting together a to-do list. Supplies to purchase, worksheets to be created or modified, equipment reservations with the school IT department. Tad is aware of what I'm doing, but he doesn't pay attention to it. The whole advantage of having me do this is he doesn't need to pay attention. I cue up some music, which plays in his otic implants so only we can hear it. We busy ourselves with our separate work, not looking at each other. I don't think either one of us is eager to return to Tad's question. Sarah knocks on the door half an hour after the bell. She's carrying Tad's data logger in one hand and has her bag slung over the opposite shoulder. Hey there! I return with gear! Tad beams and rises from his seat to accept the device. It looked like things went well today. It was perfect, Sarah says earnestly. Thank you so much. Any time. And I'd love to steal a copy of that lesson plan. That was some of the most creative teaching I've seen in a while. Now it's Sarah's turn to grin like a goof. We should team up to do some more planning. Can I send you an instance this weekend? Tad smiles apologetically, shakes his head. No, sorry, I don't do telepresence, but I'd love to meet up with you in person. Sarah looks at him with surprise. From there, her expression turns speculative, then settles into sly amusement. Okay, I'm game. You know the Cantina Viarta over on 7th? Tad nods. It's happy hour, and they have half-price appetizers and margaritas. Want to go unwind for a bit and then talk shop? Tad looks at me out of the corner of his eye, with a sheepish smile that says, You got me. I nod and give him the thumbs up. I'd be delighted, he says. As promised, I keep out of Tad and Sarah's way. My program is never off but I can change my location to spots outside his field of vision. I take a seat in the booth behind him, where I can still get a good look at Sarah. The cantina is loud, but I have a direct link to Tad's implants, so I hear everything he hears. It goes well. They spend a lot of time talking shop, of course. I've never seen two teachers together who didn't end up swapping stories about work, but I can tell they're both enjoying themselves especially when they start trading ideas for curriculum. Eventually, the conversation moves on to personal matters. So I'm just going to ask this, Sarah says, after a few margaritas, a pair of combination platters, and nearly three hours of conversation. Are you seeing anybody? Tad hesitates. I haven't been on a date in a very long time. Sarah notices the careful phrasing and quirks an eyebrow. And do you have, like, a secret family somewhere you just never talk about? Because I have to say, I'm surprised that a smart, handsome guy like you is unattached. I feel the skin temperature rise in Tad's cheeks. No, no secret family. I... I haven't been with a partner in three years. Sarah winces. Ouch. Bad breakup? I'm... I'm sorry, I'm not ready to talk about it. It's complicated. Sarah reaches across the table and takes his hand. It usually is. There is a long, pregnant pause between them. Tad's hand squeezes Sarah's. I am interested. Very interested. This has been wonderful. You're amazing, and I'd love to keep exploring this. I just... I have baggage. I don't know if I'm ready for another relationship yet. Sarah takes this in, nodding soberly. I get that. But... Well, you know how you sometimes get that kid who every new assignment, he's like, I can't do this. I'm not good at this. I can't do this. You know the one I mean? (laughs) Oh, yeah, Tad says, chuckling despite himself. A smile plays at the corners of Sarah's lips. And what do you tell that kid when he says that? Tad's heart starts to beat a little faster. I tell him, just do the best you can. It doesn't have to be perfect, and you'll get better when you practice. Sarah nods, leans in, and looks Tad in the eye. Do the best you can, she says softly. You don't have to be perfect. You'll get better with practice. Tad's flush grows a little redder. He looks down at their joined hands, nods once. A message notification flashes across Tad's vision, courtesy of his AR implants. Excuse me, sir. Will there be anything else for you tonight, or can I process payment for you? Sarah sits up, looking miffed. She must have gotten the same message. She flicks her eyes back and forth for a few seconds, the tips of her fingers twitching with subtle commands as she responds to the message. Tad does the same, forwarding his payment information to the restaurant's server A.I. We should get out of here and let them clear the table, Sarah says, getting to her feet. Tad follows her out reluctantly. He glances at me as he passes, and a flicker of worry passes over his face, I smile at him and nod after Sarah, then give him another thumbs-up. Go get her, Tiger, I whisper. Once Tad passes outside, my perspective point shifts, and I'm once again standing beside him in the AR's default position. There are no telepresence points outside the building, so I'm stuck here for the moment. I take a few steps back, as far as I am able, and Tad moves up to take Sarah's hand. They walk back to her car, then stop and face each other beside the door. Their eyes meet, and without another word, their lips meet in a fervent kiss. Watching them, I feel a sudden rush of excitement and satisfaction. I remember playing video games as a teenager, and the thrill I felt when I helped my digital protagonist overcome a difficult obstacle. Now the roles are reversed. Here I am, a computer program helping my flesh-and-blood companion through his next challenge. I wonder what flesh-and-blood Jill would be feeling right now. The kiss ends, and Tad and Sarah embrace each other. Tad leans his head against hers. I don't want this night to end, he says. Sarah leans back, looks up at him. It doesn't have to, she says. Then she leans in for another kiss. Tad returns it eagerly. Somewhere, in the kisses and caresses that follow, Sarah manages to get her car door open. She climbs inside and draws Tad in after her, settling into the broad back seat. Sarah sends her car the go-home command, and before we drive out of range, I send Tad's car the instruction to follow Sarah's. Both cars slide silently, obediently out into the Friday night traffic as their owners turned their attention to other things. And that's the end of part two. Come back next time, when Tad and Sarah take things back to her place. But will Tad really be able to go through with it when Jill's right there in the room with him? Find out next week. Ann Patchett said the journey from the head to the hand is perilous and lined with bodies. It is the road on which nearly everyone who wants to write, and many of the people who do write, get lost. So, keep your eyes on the path and both hands on the wheel, and follow me to the weekly writing report. I wrote 2,316 words this week, over the course of 2.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 926 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 51 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of November, I wrote a total of 13,819 words in 21 days, averaging 658 words per day. That ranks 32nd out of the 55 months since I started this podcast. This was the fourth time this year that I missed my goal of writing in at least 24 days. Compared to October, my word count decreased by 16%, and my writing time decreased by 27%. I got very little actual fiction writing done this week, but that doesn't mean I've been idle. I've been working on the production for a very special project, and now I'm happy to announce the upcoming release of a new story collection. The book is called Distant Realms, and it brings together 13 of my non-Metamore stories from throughout the last 20 years of writing. If you're a long-time listener of this podcast, some of these stories will be familiar to you. They include Nemesis, Flying Free, Last Sunset at the Golden Gate, and Maternal Instinct. I'm also including The Nearness of You, The Three Short Tales from Episode 211, and The Dark Lord Steve, which I've been talking about on this podcast while I was writing it. Finally, it will include a couple of stories from much earlier in my writing career, stories that contributed key ideas and concepts to the stuff I'm writing now. Distant Realms will be roughly 250 pages. I'm planning to release the ebook and paperback in February of 2020, with an audiobook version coming soon thereafter. Over on the Patreon campaign, we have four, yes, four new patrons this week. Please welcome Adonica, Ken, Oren, and Shane. This week I shared the ebook and print versions of the cover for Distant Realms, along with the back cover copy. They're visible to all patrons at the $3 level or higher. I also continued releasing the behind the episode commentaries on The Lost in the Least with a new one every other day. The last of this batch will drop on December 14th, but I'm already recording commentaries for the next batch, which I'll probably start releasing in February or March. This is also the week I sent out the annual holiday cards to my patrons. Some of you have probably already received them, and I'm hoping everyone will get theirs by Christmas. There are still 13 patrons who've not sent me their addresses, though, I've messaged all of them in the Patreon app, so if you'd like to receive a card this year, make sure to respond to my message as soon as possible. And now, the feedback. There's been a lot of great activity over on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Ariok Morningstar posted on Thursday, saying, I noticed Homecoming does not have any ratings or reviews on Goodreads. If you liked it, please share how you felt. Steve and Sarah both responded, saying that they will post their reviews once they've had a chance to finish reading it. Thanks, guys! Every review makes a difference in helping new people find the books. I think it's probably especially valuable for erotic stories like Homecoming, because there's less opportunity for people to stumble across the book by chance. Donna Wade had this to say about the last episode of The Lost in the Least. Love, love, love this story. Love the characters, love the world, love the stories. I have trouble with depression that can get pretty severe. Finding another Metamorph City chapter in my Stitcher app makes a real difference in my well-being. Thanks. Thank you, Donna, and I'm so glad that I can help to brighten your day. Bruce Lerner also responded to the finale. Chris, thank you for another intriguing, well-crafted story enjoyed the heck out of it. Just one question. What happened to the Lothanasi? They introduced the story and it seems like the Shackled God is right in their wheelhouse, but they were noticeably absent right past the ending. Hi, Bruce. It's true that the Lightbringers would be very interested in preventing the Shackled God from intruding on their reality. They are the Department of Homeworld Security, after all. But the Lightbringers are a paramilitary rapid response force, not a police agency. They can kill things without due process, and their international remit means they can go anywhere in the Empire, Quinardia, or any of several other nations that have signed on to their charter. The Lightbringers have the most up-to-date weapons and technology, and they can drop a terrifying amount of force just about anywhere with tremendous speed. All of this means that the Lothanasi have to be kept on a very short leash to prevent abuses of power. They have basically no jurisdiction over mortals. They can defend themselves if they're attacked, as they did in the parking garage at the end of Things Unseen, but they can't go out and proactively hunt down mortal civilians, even if those civilians are doing something like trying to release an imprisoned god." When the world of the supernatural rubs up against the world of the mundane, the Lightbringers are required to defer to the civilian police force. They have some latitude to share knowledge and resources, but they aren't allowed to take the field unless the actual monsters show up. Ironically, the one character in The Lost in the Least who is most clearly in the Lightbringers' jurisdiction is Murakir. He's not immortal anymore, He possesses terrifying levels of power, and he tends to do things like murder the scions of noble families and throw them in the trash bins outside Justice Tower. The Lightbringers know that Murray is tied to some kind of sinister, otherworldly entity, or at least that he believes he is, and they know he's trying to save the world. But he also tends to inflict a lot of collateral damage, and that's the kind of thing the Lightbringers try to prevent. In light of all this, it's not too surprising that Murray has shut the Lightbringers out of the loop. Right now, Janus figures that the best thing he can do is feed information to Kate, since Murray seems to listen to her. It's a fraught situation, though, and you can expect to see some more tension in this area in future books. Thanks for the question. There's a lot of other fun stuff on the fans of Metamore City group that I didn't get to here memes and story ideas and other cool stuff. Also, don't forget about the Metamore City Discord server. Things have been quiet over there, but we're still around, and I try to check in there at least a few times a day. I'll put a link in the show notes, so come say hi! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension two five five zero eight two, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash authorchrislester, the fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press.